0: You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original True Crime Review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a Salt Lake City bombing is connected to unearthed documents that could refute Mormon dogma. Is the crime to protect the church or to make money? We'll review the Netflix series Murder Among the Mormons. Then, a radio reporter gets a little too invested in her telephone relationship with an inmate. What happens when he's released from prison? Nope, it's not serial. We're talking about the new podcast, Suave. Join me to get those things done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello. Buenos tardes, amigos. Kevin, I noticed that you actually put love of my life in the script now. You've, like, indoctrinated <laughs> Well, you
1: say it all the time, so, yeah, I put it in there.
0: you basically made it now Though I have to say it because in the script. What if, if, I if
1: for one week you don't feel like it's true, then I had to write it down, <laughs> so you're forced to say it.
0: Also with us is journalist true crime author former defense investigator licensed private investigator certified cat lady and accredited pet detective Lara Bricker. Hello Lara. Meow. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, plus our Patreon book club host, by the way, that's called Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby.
2: Hey, Rebecca. You know what today is? What's today? Well, uh, this is actually the day that this drops. So the day that people are listening to this. It's my mom's birthday.
0: Oh. So, happy
2: birthday,
1: Mrs. Toby's Ball! Yeah,
2: nice. nice. nice Happy birthday, mom. mom.
0: Is there anything you'd like to say to your mom besides happy birthday? I know she actually does listen to this podcast.
1: I hope you enjoy this in lieu of a present.
2: That's
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>, right. <laughs>
2: nice. No, I sent her a present. I've got, I got her a very thoughtful present, which she'll get to open later. Maybe. So okay. she
0: won't have opened it by the time she hears this, so we shouldn't say I what the I have no idea. Yeah. Does she belong to Patreon?
2: It's more if, if I say she can oh, o- yeah, open yeah. it later.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you want to uh, you want to tweet happy birthday to my mom, you can just put me in. I'll That's
0: great. To her. And Laura Bricker, I just want to say, I know you recently celebrated a wedding anniversary, so happy
3: anniversary, Laura Bricker Yay. and long-suffering Fireman Ken. Yay. Yeah. Lucky 16. You know what anniversary that is? No. No idea. That is the fourth the cat anniversary. no more
1: anniversary. sex anniversary?
3: It's the yeah, one, what anniversary? Well, it's the fourth cat anniversary. No.
1: <laughs> no. No.
3: <laughs> no. I got this shirt. That was my anniversary gift. I got my a nice shirt. Yeah. Yeah. I went to the Kittery Outlets on my way home.
0: <laughs> oh, I see. So you went to Maine to celebrate your anniversary and all you got was that stupid shirt? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Kevin, we have a lot to do. Should we just start recording this podcast?
1: Kid or rear, main.
0: <laughs> Let's get it done. Leading off. Fatality.
1: And the comb of Salt Lake City, Utah was rocked today by two booby trap bombs that left two people dead. A morning that brought fear and death. The first explosion ripped through a downtown office building, killing one man. The second explosion outside a holiday home claimed another life. In
0: nineteen eighty-five, a bomb in Salt Lake City killed a collector of rare Mormon documents. A second device killed the wife of his business partner. The man was about to obtain a collection of documents some would conclude were dangerous ones which would upend beliefs about the church's history and its founder, Joseph Smith. After the salamander letter had significant impact for the church,
1: the McClellan collection was potentially
2: devastating, devastating.
0: At the heart of the transaction was a bookseller with an incredible track record of unearthing artifacts from famous Americans and historical religious figures. If made public, this collection would make him rich and shake Mormon dogma, but only if the documents were authentic.
3: I knew how difficult it was to create a document today and make it look like it was 15 years old. In this scenario, George said some of these documents were supposedly 150 years old, 10 times that long
0: Netflix's three-part series, Murder Among the Mormons, explains how the valuable artifacts were discovered, their impact on the church, and how a kind-of-document Ponzi scheme resulted in the deaths of two people. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points from Murder Among the Mormons, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Now, Kevin, one of the things I like about this documentary, uh, and I full disclosure, I did interview the two directors of it for the Netflix podcast, You Can't Make This Up. Yep. And I did say this to Jared Hess, but not in the podcast, but off air. I do like it that the crime is framed around and within Mormonism. And you could argue that, you know, Mormons are the perfect target for this kind of crime for various reasons. It doesn't turn the Mormonism into a character in the story per se. It doesn't frame it like a lot of stories do about right. particular religions as good, bad, or whatever. It's just that it's the background of it. Right.
1: Cult. It doesn't punch down at the religion because it's really easy to say, oh, creepy Mormons and what, and certainly in any religious organization. You're, there not, you're, are
0: not, things... you're not saying Mormons are creepy per no, se. No, no. no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't let me finish my sentence, Rebecca. <laughs> No, I mean, from the outside, anybody looking in at a religion can say, oh, well, you know, that thing is weird or whatever. But in any event, it's it's more like it's the MacGuffin Church of Latter-day Saints. It's just the thing that gets the story going this is like the perfect Maltese Falcon kind of story, right? Where it's really, it isn't about the church or or its it's beliefs or any of those religious figures. It's just about the documents. Mormonism is a great thing because it's an old religion. It's a young religion. But I say it's in that sweet spot where it's old enough that their records are rare, but it's not so old that it's a thousand years old, right?
0: So I do actually think that Mormons as a community are particularly susceptible to this kind of fraud. And this is where Mormonism does come into play, right, well, yeah. Toby?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, as Kevin was saying, it is isn't that kind of sweet spot where it's 150 years or whatever, where some of the you know original documents are coming from. So they're discoverable, and because you can discover them, you can also fake them, and they're not so old. Like, it's hard to fake, like one of Jesus's friends, like writing a letter to somebody and you're like, oh yeah, I found it in a used bookstore in London.
0: But don't you feel like if anybody (laughs) could do that, it would be this guy?
2: (laughs) I mean, it's interesting because this guy doesn't like, he swings for the fences with these things, right? It's not Mm -hmm. just like some random (laughs) letter. It's like, oh no, you know, actually, instead of the story that you've heard, it was actually Joseph Smith was led by a white salamander. Oh, this. my God, I love that. And, uh, it's like, what? What are you talking about? I mean, I'm sure there's, there's got to be some historical background for it, but just on the face of it, it's pretty wild that that would be where you'd really want to throw a lot of your effort behind
0: well, that's, that's not
2: an angel, an amphibian,
0: well, that's a what reptile. I don't know. <laughs> that's what I kept thinking. This guy was obviously a actually a brilliant forager. He could make all sorts of things. And he did uh, poets and political figures, all these. He did, he did tons of historical documents, not just Mormon stuff. And I found myself asking, like, if you're that good at this, why don't you just do like Babe Ruth baseballs and just like sell those to well. make money? Laura, you just said that you loved the white salamander letter. Why did you love it so much?
3: Because it was just like the wackiest thing I'd heard in terms of like an alternate origin story, like white salamander appears in the woods. And like, that is where this book is found. And and it's like, where did that get dreamed up? I mean, it was just, and I loved the little animations that went along with this, you know, (laughs) like that really, I just, I think that part and I'm like, white salamander, man. I mean, it was like, it was like somebody was like dropping acid or something and like came up with like... Yeah, we saw this. It was pretty out there and you're not going to believe it. I just I just I think the fact that it was unusual and they had these I think they were movies that they actually showed like they were clips, right? They were clips of actual movies that were documented oh, yeah. of
1: 1970. Yeah. Yeah. Like propaganda like, or total recruitment pro- films. Yeah. It was
0: propaganda. Kevin, um, I do want to talk about this documentary's use of historical footage. Yeah. News footage, footage from inside the prosecutor's office, historical answering machine tape from the crime scene. Uh, photos. What did you think just of the incorporation? Because there was a treasure trove of material here from the era in which this crime was committed.
1: Yeah, I think they were able to find certainly a lot of um, interesting stuff, and they used it well. I'm still kind of puzzled at like what this home video from inside the war room <laughs> of the prosecutors. They seem to just be having like so much fun. You've got every every town should have a homicide prosecutor who's a ski bum. <laughs> You know, he wasn't like, hey, man, hippy dippy. But, I
0: love that guy. But
1: he was, they certainly seemed to be having a lot of fun pulling the threads on this case. And you could, I mean, you could see it at the Why time. Why were they
0: filming it? I don't know. Did somebody? <laughs> somebody
2: got a video camera for Christmas. So- <laughs> yeah. We should take this in work. I mean, someday,
1: someday there will be. Video on demand. And someone will make a documentary about this.
0: I just kept thinking, like, they videotape all their conversations and all their discoveries and all their tests. But then, like, these poor filmmakers had to go through, like, all of it. Them eating turkey sandwiches, them Uh, telling their secretaries to get coffee.
2: I don't think it was that much.
0: But were they recording
2: everything or was it just they showed up? It seemed like it was sort of, if you see,
1: like, the camera angle, it's like that one scene with the old fat guy still standing with one hand on the doorknob like he wants to leave it just it, panning back they and also forth. but filmed, it was
0: it was used well they filmed them trying out the printing press Yeah and they also.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean I know like from when I was in my 20s at working in DC I know there's footage where a friend like brought in a video camera and was just filming us goofing around at work I, yeah. mean, I I just kind of assumed it was the same thing
1: Well you better not become a murderer Toby Well <laughs> Because they'll be looking for that footage.
0: Actually, that's actually something we also saw in Alan V. Farrow, right? She just got a yeah. video camera. Yeah. She taped everything. And, of course, we have the sensitive tapes. But we also just have Narcissism tapes Narcissism pays America. We just have tapes of them, like, hanging out and eating or whatever. Yeah. Now, Laura, let's talk about Mark Hoffman. Spoiler alert. We are in the spoilery zone of this. Mm-hmm. He is the bad guy in this. He is a forger. He's a genius at it. And you kind of wonder, like, you always ask the question, Laura, like, I want to know, like, how this person got here.
3: Yeah. Well, we find out. He's been foraging since he was a kid. What do you think about that? That was amazing, the story of the kids going treasure hunting in the woods, and you see this little <laughs> recreation, and then he digs up the jar of coins, and you find out he actually went out ahead of time and buried it. So Con man. I guess you could see how from that, you know, the reaction that he got from his peers at that point— and that feeling of people being so excited that you found something either rare or unexpected or treasure-like or, you know, uh, I could see how that would grow on you. But I think the part that amazed me was just how good he was oh, yeah. at the forgeries to the point that you had those two old guys who were brought in to analyze the documents who like spent weeks and weeks and months or whatever it was. And they they're like, these appear to be authentic. And you're like... You know, except for that weird pattern with the ink that they're the cracking, think, yes, the you know crinkled paint or whatever, so he's clearly been working towards his whole life, and this is what he chose to do, yeah, with his like mad forgery skills. well, he wanted to take down the church, i mean yeah. that seems to be his motive here if he had
0: been born into a different situation. Maybe he just would have been making Babe Ruth baseballs and just making money. Speaking of the authenticity stuff, Toby. Um, first of all, I've watched this now. Tw- like I've I've watched it as a series twice because I watched it for my interview with Netflix and then I watched it again with Kevin. But the first time I watched it, that scene where they were explaining sort of how he did things. And it was showing him like with the vacuum cleaner on the screen and like the spray bottle.
3: So to create the illusion, that would mean finding some way to pull the ink through to the back of the document.
1: It would have been aged on a metal screen with suction pulling down from the front of the document to the back with an old vacuum cleaner.
0: I rewound that and watched it so many times because I was just like, holy fucking shit. This guy is fooling the FBI and like nuclear level, whatever that fancy freaking test is with a vacuum cleaner and a screen, which made me wonder, Toby, like document authentication. Is it real? Are there people who are better at it than others? And wouldn't you expect the FBI and the nuclear level machine people to be the best? And it turns out they aren't. What do you think about that, Toby?
2: You know, it's it's surprising (laughs) You know, that that he can, with those instruments or whatever, fool it down to sort of a molecular level. Like, I'm not an expert in this stuff at all. I mean, I think with a lot of historical type stuff, there's a provenance to it so that there's some record about what might exist and what might not exist. With this stuff, there wasn't a record, but, you know, I think Mormon history is is new enough and contained enough, especially in the early years, because, you know, there's a relatively small population. And I think the dynamics are fairly well known. So it's not hard to come up with something that will seem believable to people. And there's, you know, there's obviously a lot invested within the Mormon church in the, into their own history, and, you know, probably rightly so. So it's sort of this kind of perfect storm of opportunity and interest. I mean, there's no way you can know that you're going to fool people to that degree, right? You just Mm -hmm. do your best. And then go goes to some proton machine and it comes back. They're like, it's authentic. I mean, you must have been like, oh,
1: That's the amazing (laughs) thing. It's like cooking something you've never cooked before without ever tasting it, right? Because he can like do all this crazy stuff with ozone and making his own inks and stuff. But he doesn't have the spectrometer to yeah. test that, you know, that, yeah, this I did a good job on this, so good that I can ask a million dollars for something. It's amazing. It's like you went to the MIT of forgery. So I do and have— And your question, Rebecca, about, like, why doesn't he do baseballs? Yeah, yeah. Because you have to get an actual baseball from the era. But he can't do that. No, he, no, no. Stitching and stuff like that. Yeah, they could open yeah, it up. Yeah. There would be there'd be something there to prove it. He would take a blank page from inside an old book because you can't say that was made in Scott Graphics in Holyoke, Massachusetts in 1987 and and go from there.
0: So I got some like insider dirt on this fraud from the directors of the film, which I'm not sure is perfectly clear in the film. So I'm just going to tell you a thing he did that just blows my mind. So he would very smartly start with a low stakes find. So he'd be like, OK, this is Joseph Smith's. This is an example I'm using. This is Joseph Smith's transcriptionist or whatever was that guy called his scribe. Secretary um, and he'd or, have yeah. something that was a very low stakes find. This is him saying like what they had for lunch on Wednesday before he found the plates. So that would be authenticated. And then that would be the handwriting that would be used to authenticate the later finds. Ah. He's creating his own Rosetta Stone. He would create his own provenance documents. So he would create things that then were later used to authenticate the things that may not have been It's. Like, the brilliance of it goes beyond just the techniques. It also goes to the thinking about it.
1: Brent What's-His-Name mentioned
2: that. So he's going to match the handwritings right across the board so that one forgery authenticates another.
0: So I I, I just think that's just an incredible level of just, like, long gameness, where he's like, if I want to um, forge something from Abraham Lincoln, I'll first create a thing that's like when Abraham Lincoln's left arm was broken and he had to write with his right hand, and then that <laughs> will be <laughs> authenticated. And then anyway, but I, so but I
2: think if you if you're in that world, you know what it takes to authenticate something. Yes, that it doesn't seem as obscure, right? You're like, right. okay, well, it's going to have to be authenticated. So how do I do that? Well, I'll create something that I can authenticate it against. Which I think was the deal with those McClellan letters, right? Is that he was able to create something by a McClellan. I guess there's not other stuff by, I I don't know. But it was like, you'll just compare it to this other thing I wrote.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, Laura, I do want to talk about the structure of this documentary because- They spend the whole first episode and a half-ish, a little Mm -hmm. bit more, really laying out what happened, the TikTok of what happened. You meet the characters involved, the prosecutor, the friends. You meet Mark as if he's just one of this gang of people. There's no two ways with him, but they sort of describe who he is. Do you think this structure worked in terms of suspense? I personally found myself, like, because I didn't know anything about the story, I ne- didn't necessarily for sure know that it was Mark that we were going to be looking at as the guy.
3: Yeah, I didn't either because the way that it was set up for me, I went into it feeling like when they were talking about the great white salamander and these alternate theories of how the church came to be. And then you're hearing like what a crisis this is going to be in the church and how the church is like, oh my gosh, like we're, we don't know what to do with this new information. Like I felt like. It was leaning towards the church doing something to cover up these forgeries. And I really was quite surprised when it came out that it was Mark who was doing the forgeries who was trying to—like, that's not where I saw this going. Um, No, the church was covering up the things they thought were real. (laughs) <laughs>
1: not the thing, or there. harmful. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah that was, that's what yeah. I mean.
3: Is that What? So when Mark was producing these forgeries that that were you know showing something different that that wasn't what they had already thought was their history. That's what I'm getting at. It's like I just thought that they were the ones that were going to kill somebody. I'm like the Mormons Church is going to kill someone. That's where this is going. And I'm like, oh, guess not. You know? It had, like, a
0: little bit of Scientology vibes there for a second of just, like, keeping everything in a giant building mm-hmm. under lock and key. We don't want anyone to see anything that's damaging. Kevin, I have a question about a character for you. Hit me. Shannon Flynn.
1: No relation.
0: <laughs> plays a big part in the story. Uh, he's the opening scene of the story. He says, don't, right. ha- don't ask me that question. I actually
1: really like that. But
0: then later, he says, don't ask, don't ask me that question. Let someone else answer it. And then he actually also answers it, by the well, way.
1: Well, I mean, I thought it was a great sort of Teaser because then I wanted to know what the question
0: was. Didn't it remind you of the clip that's used at the beginning of the next thing we're going to review in terms of dropping you in the middle of the action and then going back?
1: Yes, but in that case, I understand what's happening there. Right. There's sort of, I have a lot of questions like, oh, well, now I'm really intrigued. What doesn't he want to answer? And I'm like, we better find out by the fucking time this is over what he. And of course, at the end, we do hear it. And the question essentially was, wasn't he the greatest for doing this? Time. For, and. He says, yeah. I mean, in the end, he says, yeah. He's a very dramatic person, that Shannon Flynn, by the way. The poor man didn't know. He didn't know he was given a blessing to Satan. (laughs) But it wasn't his fault.
0: He was doing the right thing. But he also might be somewhat culpable. And I think the documentary... Laura knows what I'm talking about, right?
1: He's a little... He's.
3: Yeah, that guy was... He was a little shady, but he was kind of a character. Um, Kind of. To put it mildly. <laughs> and then he ends up getting arrested. I'm like,
2: huh.
3: Yeah. He kind of he looks like my cat. Toby, what did you think of
0: Shannon Flynn? Because I do think he's maybe the one character in this that for me as a viewer, like all my questions about him were not answered at the end where they were about Mark and they were about Mark's wife and they were about everybody else. But I felt with him like I still don't know in everything. What did you think?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's not clear, like the level of his complicity. Or why he feels quite as betrayed as he still seems to, like, I don't know, like 30 years later or whatever. Well,
0: Alvin Rust has a reason to, betray- to be betrayed, the guy who right, lost, all, lost the all that money. Like, he has a reason. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, you know, Shannon is probably looking for somebody to drive around in sports cars and blast the shit out of stuff with automatic <laughs> weapons. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he doesn't really have a poker face, you know, I mean, it's, (laughs) you
0: think or a poker voice.
2: (laughs) And part of it is everybody else in this is like super like placid when they talk like these, uh, you know, antiquarian book people are just, they're just very like, even when they're getting emotional, they're just very like kind of calm and stuff. And he's like the one guy who seems like fairly animated. Um, Mm. Him am in the prosecutor. That's it. I the, love prosecutor, the, prosecutor, the prosecutor's yeah. a piece of work, too.
0: Toby, you would be friends with that guy. 100%. The prosecutor be with that guy. Oh, yes. yeah. That guy's awesome. He's <laughs> fucking
2: rad. I would 100% like, enjoy having beers with that guy. And uh, Monday, Monday evening, oh, I drank a little bit, so I'm a little hungover coming into work. The radio was on, and I heard that there was a bombing, and I knew that that was probably going to be assigned to me. One of the things that I did remember mentioning is that. It's a beautiful day for a bombing.
0: What I loved about him was he, like, um, now, of course, I know, like, not everyone who lives in Salt Lake City is Mormon, but certainly Mormonism kind of runs the city in many ways. Like, they own a lot of property. They have a lot of media. They mm-hmm. only have, like, a TV station, a radio station. We see a lot of, like, Mormon news in this documentary. And he's like, no, I just came here to ski. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, no. like, No connection at all. Toby, I want to ask you a question about Mark Hoffman. He's a cold motherfucker, yes or no?
2: I was trying to think about this. I was like, of all the people we've, like, sort of digested stuff about, he's maybe the guy who's been most upfront about the fact that he's just a complete sociopath. Yeah. Mm. Like, when he talks about killing those people, he's like, well, you know, it wasn't that great a loss. You know, they they could have been hit by a car.
1: Yeah. You
2: know, it's like, mm, that's not really the way most people would look at that. Well,
1: definitely, I feel remorse. Uh, for yourself and your family or for your victims? Yeah. Uh,
0: part of my philosophy of life we were talking about earlier
2: is that the victims are not suffering at this point he's just very easily can rationalize all this stuff he also has this weird thing about like how if you know most people think it's real if it seems real and most people think it's real then it then it is real it's like yeah that's that's not the way that works either really yeah. I mean there's real and there's not real and just because you fool a bunch of people you can't like suddenly claim it's authentic so. He's, he's a piece of work.
0: I also found him to be quite sociopathic and emotionally detached, especially when he talked about Mrs. Sheets and mm. her death. It's like, oh, well, she just happened to be there. 50, oh, it, 50. Could, it could
2: have been a kid. It could have been, it
0: could could have been him.
2: It could have been his wife. Yeah. It could have been a child.
0: Yeah, no. Like, and, he just, he didn't, and, and he would just very calculatingly talk about, well, I, I thought I was going to get caught and whatever. So I just decided something had to be done. Now, Laura, that brings me to the question about the bomb in his own car. Because initially, like, he sort of says that he did it, I don't know, it was some sort of tactic to, like, whatever. But it does seem like that they lay out a pretty good case that he just made a mistake. Yeah. (laughs) He, like, was going to go bomb somebody else. Mm -hmm. And it didn't occur to him that driving downhill would set off the bomb. Um, But he also had all those papers in the trunk, which made me think, like, maybe he set off the bomb to, like, destroy the fake papers. But the question came up, like, to Toby's point, why would you commit suicide if you'd already killed all these people? And he's just like, whatever. But what do you think about the bomb in his own car, Laura? Do you have a theory about that?
3: Well, I guess, I mean, you're saying like, oh, you know, he just didn't realize it was going to go off. But I'm like, this guy planned everything so specifically, his forgeries, the way that he set up his forgeries, the way that he did everything, it seems so out of character that he'd have like this fluke accident. Like, my take, like, if I'm looking at it, is like, okay, he's trying to like throw suspicion off of himself into like a wider conspiracy that he was a victim as well. Because it doesn't add up with what we've seen of him doing everything so methodically and so calculated to then fuck up the bomb <laughs> you know yeah yeah no I agree mm-hmm. now Kevin I have a final question for you before
0: I ask it I have a little question yeah would it surprise you to hear that one of the directors of this film was the writer and director of one of your all time favorite movies Napoleon Dynamite oh <laughs>
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> Jared Hess yeah. was the writer and director of Napoleon Dynamite, just FYI. Thank
1: you. But I need my chapstick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um Kevin, the end of the documentary, yeah. you know, the one person that's kind of missing as an interviewee. They really do have incredible access to so many people in this, but they don't have Hoffman himself. Mm-hmm. But we do get a picture over a series of like photos of Mark Hoffman's, you know, Time After Arrest and Life in Prison. How do you feel about that as a, a cap to this story?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's as good as you're going to get. Um, some of those uh, mug shots that they take periodically to update their IDs or prison IDs that they wear. Uh, yeah, he ended up like going rough. From, yeah, yeah, he looked a little crazy. But he looked like David Koresh once and then he looked like a mad dog wrestler or something yeah. like that. But I thought it was a great postscript to his story that he got depressed and tried to kill himself. And um, that's not great. But the the part was that he passed out on his arm, and the way he did it, it ended up cutting off circulation to of the arm, so now that he can't use it to forge anything yeah. anymore. Was he not forging that he was prison? That's... No, but it's sort of it's it's sort of a you know a poetic justice that like well now you can't ever do that. It's like Burgess Meredith breaking his glasses. Oh, in the Twilight Zone. Everybody knows that reference.
0: All right, don't at
1: me. You know the <laughs> Google it.
0: Let's do what we do. Uh, Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Murder Among the Mormons on Netflix? I'd like you to give it your thumbs up or thumbs down review. Let our listeners know, should
3: they check it out? Laura Bricker, what do you think about Murder Among the Mormons? I give this a thumbs up. Three episodes. I think it was a good length, but I thought it was, I mean, I had never heard about this story. The title, I was expecting something a little bit different because, you know, it was definitely, I think, a wider story about belief and history and also just this master forger and the lengths he went to to pull one over on the Mormon church. So I thought it was I thought it was really interesting. There was a lot of good access. There was a lot of good historical footage and there's like some really great reenactments of this ridiculous car chase or car <laughs> I don't even know what you Go want right. to call it out in the desert. and, and that
1: That's the Napoleon Dynamite stuff. (laughs) Yeah.
3: So I would say thumbs up.
0: Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Murder Among the Mormons?
2: Yeah, I give it a thumbs up as well. I think they've got the right people to talk to. You know, I'm glad they kept it to three episodes. I think it was the right length. It doesn't have that sort of stretching aspect to it that some of these things have. It's an interesting story. I actually... I remember reading about this like maybe in 1984 or 1985 when I was in high school, uh, reading about it in the New York Times and thinking it was kind of interesting, but then never knowing what happened afterwards. So it was, you know, catching up on it 35 years later. So yeah, thumbs up. Kevin Flynn? I'm also a thumbs up. I liked you
1: know, the, I did like the story and I liked the way it was told. It was uh, perfectly succinct in three episodes. The Where the story went um, is not where I expected, but it was told very well. I, I don't have a lot more to say about it other than I, I thought the people that we met along the way were interesting. And then when I f- found out, without spoiling anything, the technologies and techniques <laughs> and artistry used was really fascinating there ought to be a nat geo show yes about this you don't you there don't is you don't need alien <laughs> antique aliens or ancient whatever aliens. ancient aliens God, i think God. we just want to know more God. about <laughs> historical documents so thumbs up
0: yeah thumbs up for me too i mean this documentary wasn't too long it wasn't too short it told a story that i didn't know anything about but i do realize right away has very deep consequences and is thought a lot about by the people who actually experienced it and the community around that. One thing I love about this documentary that we touched on a little bit is that all the subjects in it are just treated with a tremendous amount of dignity uh, from somebody's wife to church leaders to people who are involved in a scam and may or may not have had some involvement. It just treated its subjects just very fairly. And I really appreciate that. Plus, there was some fun to it, too. There are some recreations in this documentary that cracked me the hell up. And that, to me, were just really, really made it fun to watch. So big thumbs up Tita, for me.
1: come get your ham.
0: A <laughs> big thumbs up for me for Murder Among the Mormons. Do
1: chickens have claws? Well, welcome to the business section everybody.
0: Kevin, how does that music go? Like
1: this. Ba-da-ba-da.
0: So Kevin, here we are in the business section I and you said that. This is the time in which we talk about all the ways that our audience should engage with us more on our Patreon, which by the way, our Patreon supports the production of this show. So if you like this show and you want more stuff we make, you should check it out. But Kevin, what do we have going on our Patreon right now?
1: Right now on the Crime Writers on After Show, which is in your feed, uh, we're going to do two things. We are going to talk about episode four of Alan versus Pharaoh. right? It drew a whole bunch of great comments on our Facebook group. So we're going to pick that up because we only saw 75% of it. And that last episode, we got to ask each other, did it really uh, tie up all the uh, the loose ends? And then we're going to go a little deeper into our next review, which is the podcast Suave, that there is still a whole bunch of stuff, even after we talk about all of it, that there's more that we seem to want to pull apart. So we're going to we're gonna resume the conversation there. And also, I want to let you know that if you listen to our other podcast, These Are the Stories, the Law & Order podcast, we're running a contest right now, and it's called These Are Your Stories. Ooh. And if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, all you got to do... Just go to the website, lawandorderpodcast.com, and you can fill out the form there for your chance to uh, be a winner. Just tell us a little bit about why it should be you. Maybe tell us about your favorite episode or your unifying law and order theory, you know, are Gorin and uh, Chester Lake, are they well, that's obscure. Of- It's really obscure, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Do you think that uh, Claire was actually getting it on with Jack McCoy of all those years she ago? Of course was. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%.
0: Did AVB actually hate, uh, what's his face, like I always say she did?
1: No, the answer is no. Said, Anita Van Buren did not hate Curtis. Yeah. And you heard that right from the mouth of patha Murkison. I
0: still think she hated it.
1: Famous her. actress. <laughs> now you think you're. Yeah, she's wrong, Rebecca. And also, later this week, Toby Ball is going to be recording the next episode of The Deep Dive. Mm. Look, if you sponsor us a Patreon at the Crime Writers On sponsor level, yep. then one of the benefits you get is to sit in on the recording with Toby and his panelists, and you can chat and type, or you can actually jump on the screen and talk about the book, so it's like a real book club. Toby, what are you going to be talking about?
2: We are going to be talking about We Keep the Dead Close, which is about uh, the murder in 1969 of a archaeology student uh, at Harvard, and we're going to have Amber Hunt and Alex Segura and wow. Deb Shudika. Hmm. Wow. So do that
1: now because uh, he's recording this on Monday. Yeah. And even if you missed the live recording, you can still get the podcast when it drops.
0: Side question, Toby. Uh, The next podcast we're going to review, there's um, someone named Alex Segura in the credits for having made some of the music for the podcast. Is that the same Alex Segura? That's our friend Alex Segura?
2: I doubt it. He's multi-talented.
0: I think it might be. I really, really think it might be.
2: Well, we'll find out.
0: Uh, you got to ask him that in the in the book club, All right, right, Toby? All right, so Kevin, before we move on, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week?
1: Our Patreon patron saints are Jackie
0: Beck and Karen
1: Banta. Bless,
0: Bless you. All right, Kevin, does that wrap it up for the business section? It
1: does. Get rid of this music.
0: I'm going to fade that out. Moving on. It was actually in this room, right? In this studio where you would call and I'd come running in and we'd record, you know, I'd hold the phone up here, right here. So it was in this room that I had hundreds of phone calls with you. Wow. I know that. In 1993, NPR reporter Maria Inajosa met an inmate serving life for a murder committed while he was a juvenile. She interviewed David Luis Suave Gonzalez on prison issues. But their weekly phone calls over the decades left Maria in a gray area between typical source development and ethically questionable friendship. You know, it's complicated because... You know, I have to acknowledge I'm reporting
3: on Suave, right? I'm, I'm reporting on him at this point. I'm recording our phone calls. I can't get involved with a source like that.
0: When Suave is released from prison in 2017, he tries to navigate the world on the outside. Maria continues to record their calls, all the while trying to navigate her own place in Suave's new life. Meanwhile, both of them must come to terms with the crime that put him there in the first place. What I didn't know was... That the person that was going to approach me is the same person that a couple of weeks before
1: we had an altercation down Franklin Street.
0: The seven-part podcast Suave from Futura Media is hosted by Maggie Freeling. It bills itself as a look at the juvenile justice system. But is it really about the unconventional relationship between the convict and the reporter? Should Maria have kept a more professional distance with an unlikely friend? And how does that affect her reporting on a man who killed a 13-year-old kid three decades ago? Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Suave. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up and thumbs down review. Now, uh, Toby, I think this podcast is extremely timely because there is an incredible like, wide ranging conversation going on in newsrooms right now about objectivity and white supremacy And relationships with sources. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, For instance, we find out after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death that Nina Totenberg and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are good friends. NPR knew. They didn't care. In my own newsroom, I know that one of our political reporters plays tennis with his sources all the time. Everyone knows. No one cares. But the conversation happening in newsrooms right now is about women, people of color, trans people, gay people, and whether or not their relationships with sources are treated differently than sort of the standard journalism relationships, and whether or not this idea of objectivity is kind of bullshit in and of itself. I think that's what this podcast is kind of about and very timely for that reason. What do you think about that thread in this podcast, Toby?
2: I think that's an interesting conversation. I don't know if it applies necessarily to this I mean, I, I kind of feel there's a difference between being friends with your sources that you have to cover and stuff, and then sort of more kind of advocacy journalism, and I think it's like a slightly different issue, and I don't think that's a matter of it not being two white guys in this situation, but it's, you know, I mean, it's the tension that's in this podcast, I guess. I mean, I I guess you could probably listen to it and just as sort of a personal story, but that to me seemed like the thing throughout was like, what exactly is going on here and how does that affect you know what we're hearing because I, you know, regardless of how close Nina Totenberg and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were, Nina Totenberg wasn't like cheering for her and stuff, and like or using her as a source.
1: But
0: you didn't hear any. Yes, of course she was using her. as no, a source. No, she was
2: reporting on
1: oh, the court. Please. She
0: was totally using her as a source. Oh, well, she's come on. Oh, she was. She... Wow, well, and in what way? Because she knew about her personality. Because that they isn't were
1: being a source that being on the said, Supreme
0: Court. That being said. Oh, anyway, whatever. Um. So what you just said, Toby, just makes me think like. We actually haven't heard any of Maria's reporting about Suave in this podcast. This podcast isn't stories that we've heard Maria report about prison, about incarcerated juveniles or whatever story she reported along the way. We don't hear any of that. So we don't know whether or not she was able to just still report, even though she had like a relationship with him where she sent him Christmas cards. So I-, I think that this podcast is probably different than the straight reporting she did. You know what I mean?
2: Well, yeah, but I think it's also, you know, it may be the podcast is the way it is because that wasn't going to be possible. Mm. I mean, the first thing I heard about this was a tweet from Maria talking about how the people on the podcast had said, you can't be the host. You know, you got to step back. And she was saying what good advice that was. And it was great to work with smart people who are willing to like talk to her about that and get it done, which I thought was going to be really interesting until I heard the podcast. I was like, well, of course you can't possibly... Host this, you know. I mean, it would just be such a different thing, and and probably.
1: And I wanted to hear that in the podcast.
2: Yeah, it would have been it would have been great to hear it in the podcast. Like, yeah. he, if you had didn't see the tweet, you have to kind of infer. It's like, well, why is this reporter having somebody else be the host? And it's because there wasn't. I mean, there was just no remove. I guess.
0: Hmm. Now, Laura, you went went to journalism school. So Mm -hmm. you learned the things that everyone learns in journalism school or from working in a newsroom about Mm -hmm. objectivity and source building and so forth, which, by the way, there's a conversation there, too, about why. And like, is it because you learned it? And why did you learn it? And who decided that it should be that way? That's a separate conversation. Mm -hmm. So let's just say you as a trained journalist are dropped into this. What were your feelings initially when you heard the conversations about their relationship, the Christmas cards, the taped phone calls, where you hear sort of the
3: affection and all that stuff? It was a bit of an adjustment, I'll be honest, because listening to the conversations, it came across like she's like an aunt or like a relative in the way that she's speaking to him, and and she's so genuine when she's talking to him, and he's clearly very happy to talk to her. Anyway, how are you doing? I miss you. That's what I'm doing. It's like you don't call anymore. When you were I'm written, t- listen. you call me
1: at least once or twice a week. You're like... You know, it's like, I guess you're just too goddamn busy, you know, and it's like, no,
3: it didn't really feel to me like this source journalist relationship. And I think there was a point where I felt really badly for him. I think it was when he was asking her to speak at his hearing at court. His lawyer did. Yes. But then he asked her and he said, it's because my friends, the people that know me are going to be speaking. And then she says, not to him, but I think when she and Maggie were talking when she was, that he's not her friend. And I'm like, well, I don't think that was really fair because when you're in jail, in prison, and this is a person that you're talking to so frequently who knows these details of your life and who speaks to you with such kindness and like jokes around with you, I guess from his perspective, it did feel like she was his friend. And so there was for me a little bit of this like adjustment in listening to this. But by the same token, I was like, okay, let's think about this. If you have somebody that you have been reporting on for how many, was this Decades. Like decades, decades. There's no way that you're not going to develop a relationship with that person. And just to kind of go back to that conversation of like being friends with sources, you know, I've like worked in the town that I live in as a journalist. And of course, you're going to be friends with people that you're writing about. There's no way to escape it when you are like a community journalist and you're living in a community. But you have to know when to step back. Like, I started dating Ken. Guess what? I'm not going to be writing anything about the fire department. Oh, come on. That would be a good story, though. Yeah. Like, I can cover breaking (laughs) news fires, because that doesn't seem... But I'm not covering the budget. I'm not covering... Like, you know, I think there are are times to back away. But in this case, it just felt like the level of familiarity was so... It was was tricky. Did you appreciate
0: when she was working that out in the podcast, because I loved the passage where she was talking about how, you know, I understand why he thinks we're friends. We do have a relationship, but I also have a whole life. I love that they left that in and they didn't leave it unaddressed. Like, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, you're too close. Let's leave it there. We heard her hashing out, but wait, I guess we actually are
3: friends. And so I need to ask you, you know, at this point, Is this still a journalistic tool? Well, I mean, the truth is Suave at this point was more than a story. Yeah, the lines got blurred. I mean, it's complicated. Did you like her transparency there? And hashing it out? I did. Yeah, I I appreciated the transparency and I appreciated the way that she talked through it and everything. But I just, I came away feeling sort of badly for him because, you know, his support network was small and really she was part of that support network listening to him talk for all those years.
1: There's many parallels between Maria and Suave and Sarah Koenig and Adnan, right? You've got someone who is a reporter and having phone calls with somebody in prison while they're working on their story. You know, and people were really concerned about, oh, uh, Sarah Canick has gone too far and she's gotten too close or whatever. I'm not sure, though, how you have multiple weekly conversations with an inmate for years without some sense of like where this is going. You can argue where you draw the line, but you draw it someplace. Where do
0: you stop return- recording the phone calls? That was my question. <sighs>
1: That's it. He, <laughs> he gets out of jail and you're still recording the telephone calls. I feel like there's something that has not been told or I there is a line between being professional and too familiar. Right. But if if you're calling your source, sweetie and referring to yourself as sis, then it's someplace. I mean, and like we talk about they're having, you know, a personal relationship. It's not romantic and it's it's never intimated at that. So let's get that. That's obviously our line crosser. But. And you know, still, at what point is he no longer your source slash story subject? When are you just friends? It's okay to be friends or friendly with sources and with people that you cover. Those are different things. Yep. It's okay to you know have a drink with somebody or what? That's how you work sources, right? And this is sort of what we're left to believe: one or two phone calls a week for years, mm. and then we hear the familiarity. She gets angry with him that she finds out later that he's engaged. Yeah. Right. Look, in the end, it's okay to have that friendship. But she's not but
0: hosting you- the thing, so it's fine. Well,
1: I feel I love Maggie. I think it's great that she comes in. I feel maybe a little bit like she had to pull a punch or two. I think they could have gone a little deeper into that with her so i have a They question. nibble I and mean, with with maria they nibble around the edges about hmm is this okay but i don't think they really go all the way there on that
0: so i don't want to get into an argument i'm just gonna preface it by saying that okay you know what i found myself thinking and you don't have to respond
1: i'm gonna respond girl. i found
0: myself thinking we didn't ask those questions about brian reed when we heard his hours and hours of conversations with john and then we heard him weeping when he heard about John's suicide, and then we heard him extolling his feelings about John and his emotions about it's, John,
1: we—it's a different I'm, thing. I'm just saying, if you can't, if you look, if you can't see that that's different, then I see you just that never
0: will. I see it as a different circumstance, but I also do think we look at it through a different lens but when it's a woman. I actually think. Well, we okay, no, here's I absolutely, why this I 100% disagree. Yeah, yeah, I,
2: I, disagree I 100% too. disagree.
3: Yeah,
2: you know, I, I think the, the the first time that this came up was missing Richard Simmons, and that was my critique at the time. It Was like, this is not really about Richard Simmons or why he's disappeared or whatever. It's about the reporter's relationship to what he thinks Richard Simmons is. Hmm. There's definitely like the serial comparison to be made. But in my mind, the whole time I was thinking Missing Richard Simmons in that it's supposed to be about one thing, but it's really about another. The way they kind of frame it is, you know, these kids get put away for the rest of their lives. Like what happens? Like what's, what are the consequences of that? And there's almost nothing about that. I mean, that that that's like a very, very minor part of this. This is really about this friendship and in my mind, that's that's sort of why the whole journalistic thing didn't stick too much in my craw is because, I mean, it's really just about their friendship. It's about this friendship that developed between a journalist and a guy who was in prison who, you know, I guess by all accounts, by all accounts that we hear, had this remarkable transition in prison and is this very engaging guy. And they, they formed this very close relationship to the point where- when it comes time to make a podcast about him, she has to kind of remove herself as a teller of the story. She just becomes absolutely part of the story along with him. The subject. So it's just the the why it matters is how
1: unbiased can Maria be about covering Suave if they have this deep relationship. So the listener has to wonder that. And so it it passes to Maggie to tell the story, but now Maggie is reporting on her boss. Which is fine. Her boss is really... So I'm just saying it puts everybody in sort of a weird position, but... To put it out there and make it transparent, and so you see, I mean, they're not hiding any of that, so that you can make up your own minds about what's troubling, or what you believe, or if you're comfortable with all of it, I think... That was the right way to to go with it because you took all this cream and you churned it long enough and it's butter and it's never going back to cream.
0: So can we just move on to actually the reporting but and the story? I, I mean, we could talk about this journalism part of it for hours. I know oh, yeah, we, could. we love it. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk about this podcast. But there's also a tremendous amount of storytelling and reporting and story advancement in this podcast. And Laura, one of the big themes here is. Life sentences for juveniles. And we hear in the podcast that, you know, there was this Supreme Court case in 2016, which struck down mandatory life sentences for juveniles. Some states are just ignoring it. Uh, One of the states I know that happens to be sort of ignoring it and not handling it well is Maryland, where Adnan Syed was convicted as a juvenile, even though on the paperwork it said he was 18. He was actually 17 when he was arrested. Um, There are many states that have ignored it. There are many states that have um, just, you know, sort of blown by it. Pennsylvania, we know, was incredibly corrupt. The Philadelphia police the prosecutors. It's the most corrupt era in one of the most corrupt justice systems in the United States at that time. But there isn't there are other threads here. There are criminal justice threads. Laura, do you think
3: the reporting there was interesting and thorough? I thought it was interesting. I would have liked to hear a little bit more about some other cases where that came into play, you know, because I mean, the first thing I thought when I started hearing this, when I'm listening to this is like, oh, yeah, I remember when this decision came out because we had a couple of really high profile cases here in New Hampshire that this would have affected. We had the Dartmouth College professor murders and Robert Tellick, who grew up in the town I graduated high school in. And then we also had the Dingman case, which I think was like somewhere else in this day, the guy who had killed his parents. You know, so I remember when there was this sort of shuffling about how are we going to handle these cases? Are these people going to get hearings? Are they going to be resentenced? And that whole issue of the juvenile life sentence. You know, that's a really interesting issue, because when you think about people going to prison for life when they are not even adults yet, I mean, that's got some major ramifications. And I so I would have liked to hear a little bit more about that. But I thought that was definitely something when I heard I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And so I want to see where this is going to go. Now, Toby, I have a question for you,
0: because you talked about Suave's, you know, remarkable transformation in prison. We hear a lot on the podcast, especially in later episodes, about what happened to other people that he grew up with, you know, who didn't go to prison. I kept thinking over and over again, especially when he was making that speech to the kids at the school about how he apologized, how they had spent $35,000 a year on him to lock him up instead of spending that money on all the other social programs they could. This prison was his social safety net in a way that he never would have gotten in the outside world. I'm not saying prison is good. What I'm saying is I just found myself being like profoundly sad that the only way Suave had an opportunity to graduate high school, get a college degree, become a writer— listen to fucking healthcare. listen to fucking npr yeah but yeah uh was to be in prison
1: (laughs) to listen to npr for for real
0: by the way lots of inmates listen to public radio i know this because we had a live call-in show earlier in the pandemic and we got so many calls from inmates at the men's prison in new hampshire i was like they all listen to npr so anyway um but toby i just found myself thinking that like there's a social safety net that's absent in the real world that was present for him in prison. And the consequences of the social safety net are a person who's living, like, their best life and is contributing.
1: What do a degree in prison gonna do for you? Absolutely nothing. When I get my degree, I'm gonna put it up in my ward and probably collect some dust. But I use it to motivate other people that, man, you can have 100 years and you still go to school to educate yourself.
0: I mean, did you hear that at all?
2: Yeah, it's a tough one. It's hard to know. It's not as though he went there and he got like a progressive sort of nurturing situation. You know, he was in the hole for a long time. I mean, that's how he learned to read was while he was there, sort of deprived of human contact beyond being able to hear the voice of somebody. Yeah, so it's hard to know, like, would he have come to some point where in the outside world, he he sort of came to the same realizations about what the potential was and, and the route that he was going I have a hard time separating him, the person, from his situation because I don't think that happens very often hmm. in prison. And so, you know- I if, do.
0: By the way, I do. I mean, the inmates we've reported on have like like done tremendous things. I mean, they're, they, they it sucks. No one wants to go to prison, but I don't know. I, I do think that this is a more common story than we think it is because there's a ton of incarcerated people that Undisclosed has covered that I've seen in documentaries. Like they just, they were able to- like, But those are the ones lo- who get covered- Yeah, it's true. No, you're right. right. You're right. You're absolutely right. That's a good point.
2: So I I don't know. I mean, it's a tough one, but it is interesting. And I I do think about, you know, it's not a great analogy, but Allen Iverson, the basketball player, they talk about how like one of the things that kind of got him into college was that he was arrested and just like the coach knew where to find him. Mm-hmm. You know, because he wasn't living a very stable life before that. But once he was in, in prison, Coach could go and talk to him and 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 get him to come to Georgetown. And you know, he went to the NBA, and the Hall of Fame, all this stuff. So you know, it, it's it's an interesting question.
0: But Laura, that also brings up questions about social justice. We hear about how lifetime parole is a trap. It's very easy to fall into a hole. We hear in the podcast, it's not even necessarily a misstep. It's an accusation of a misstep Mm -hmm. that gets you thrown back in jail. We hear about him not being able to secure employment, even though he had previous employment. It seems like his career was on track. It was arbitrary that he was actually like... The fact that he was, like, looking to work with the police was, like, always yeah. very surprising yeah. to me. Um, but what did you think about that? Because he did just sort of describe it as modern-day slavery, the yeah. incarceration and the parole.
3: Yeah, and I think a lot of this was that relationship between Suave and Maria. Episode 7, the last episode, really got into this issue, and I felt like this was really strong because listening to what he went through, you know, it, it was impactful because it was, like— Here's a guy who has done everything he's supposed to. And that lifetime parole, like, fuck. I mean, that's, like, awful. You know, he couldn't drink for the rest of his life. He couldn't do this for the rest of, like, all the things that he had to do to be on good behavior. So it's like, yes, on one hand, you're out of prison. And that's great. On the other hand... I can see how it feels like your hands are just tied all the time. And the fact that you can get sent back just based on an accusation just seems so wrong to me. You know, when you think about fairness in the criminal justice system and being able to defend yourself, just it's like anybody could say anything. And, you know, I'm thinking like when I was working as a defense investigator and I remember having cases where you'd have somebody that was doing so well and you're like rooting for this person and then like one little thing happens and they're back in jail and you're like, no, you know, mm. so I, I really related to that part when we heard him getting sent back and then she doesn't hear from him for that long period of time. And he's ashamed, he, right? Yeah. He's ashamed of having been sent back. Yeah, it was awful.
0: Kevin, did you think that part of the podcast was satisfying The sort of parole? Yeah, experience?
1: yeah. Look, I mean, is it, for as much as we are focused on the journalism questions it is, you know, billed as a story about Suave in his attempt. It's called Suave, so it ought to be about him, about his attempt to sort of reacclimate himself and, you know, what. The juvenile justice system is all about, and I, I think I was satisfied with the way that they told his story. You know, I thought that I thought that that was good, and I certainly enjoyed the episode where uh Maggie and julietta go to the neighborhood and you know get scared off by a guy eating a threatening bowl of cereal. I mean, it's
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: something
0: that was Laura Bricker level. <laughs> that was Laura Bricker level detective. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, you know that thing. else was Laura Bricker level? Was like, let's get the fuck out of here. It okay, was also phone. come on, move Laura. It. You've done some investigations in some places. Is I know that you have probably had some rotten smells come through doors. You've probably dealt with guys in red t shirts following you down streets, right? Mm-hmm.
3: Oh yeah, I remember. I, I definitely, I think that was sort sort of towards the end of that part of my career. And I remember like one day I went in somewhere to do an interview and there was a lady who was clearly high on something very, and she was just laying on a mattress on the floor and she stood up and she's like, no fucking police. I said, no fucking. She starts like screaming and I and her son is like, it's not the police. And I'm like, all right, I am getting out of here. And I like, it was like I was on the third floor. I could still hear her yelling at me out on the street. So yes, that was one of those where I was like, time to move along. Yeah, absolutely. Toby, did you have um, Suave hanging out with Bill Cosby in prison
0: on your bingo card for this podcast?
2: (laughs) I did not. <laughs> it was a strange little small world moment.
0: And you know it was true because he transitioned to speaking Spanish with Maria on the phone. So you 100% know that Bill Cosby was being wheeled past at that exact second.
1: Translate this, Dr. Cosby. <laughs> you fucking picture pages. <laughs> Ixnay on the osby On the osby <laughs> Hey,
0: guess who had a podcast made about them now, motherfucker? Now, Toby, there's a whole other thread in this podcast which we haven't even touched which is actually the investig you know sort of quasi and reinvestigation of suave's crime and the case and what sent him to prison and the circumstances that was kind of the last couple episodes of the podcast they made that pivot looking at him after angela makes this accusation against him that sends him back to prison so they sort of start looking at him more closely oh angela well, you know what? Let's leave Angela, Angela where she is. It, yeah, That's, I, don't, I don't think anyone can answer questions about oh, Angela on this panel. Uh, Toby, what do you think of that thread that they really did try to look into the circumstances around this crime? I mean, they did it at the beginning where they asked him what happened, but then they also kind of revisit it near the end. Did you find that interesting, especially when they found that police report saying that he did not do it?
2: Yeah, I, I did. I mean, I thought that was... Sort of the strongest part of it. And I almost wish they maybe had woven that in a little bit more. But yeah, yeah. No, that was interesting. I liked it better after the last two episodes than I did when I finished episode five. I think the last two episodes kind of were the strongest part of it.
0: Mm. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Suave? It's a podcast from Futura Media, distributed by PRX, hosted by our friend Maggie Freeling.
3: Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Should people check out Suave from Futura Media? Yeah. I mean, obviously, I had some conflicting feelings about the setup in this podcast with the relationship between the journalist and Suave. But, you know, just all of the hours of tape of these conversations over the years are just so fascinating, and it's such an interesting window. I'll give it a thumbs up. I feel like I wish that this had been a little bit more just pitched as this relationship that developed and not so much about how the juvenile justice system worked, because I feel like it's like two separate issues. And I feel Mm. like the relationship, and I'm going to call it a friendship because I feel like it was a friendship. The friendship that developed between these two was actually, to me, more of the story. And there were other ways that we could have learned more about the juvenile justice system. I I just thought it was very interesting. Toya Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Suave.
2: I basically agree with everything that Laura said in that it actually, after about the first episode, you know, the whole, like, she's a journalist and stuff. I mean, I, I kind of left that behind. And I was like, okay, this is really about this friendship, like regardless of how they got together in the first place. Now they're just friends and you're, you're you're close to one of the people in this friendship watching the other guy who's just come out of prison, try and adjust to his life. So I, I thought it was a little uneven, like how interesting I found like the different things that happened uh, and some of it was like super super affecting um, and, and really fascinating then other parts of it uh, didn't hit as much. Um, I thought the the last two episodes were really strong. So I, I'll give it a thumbs up. It was a little frustrating at times, but I think the stuff that was good in it was really, really good. And you know, I wish I'd kind of gone into it with a slightly different frame of mind and not been too concerned about. The origins of the friendship or or Maria's profession, because I don't think she's acting in that regard in this as, as much as she is just as a friend of somebody who's incarcerated for most of their lives.
1: Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up, even though I do have actually not concerns with the podcast, the way it's put together. As some of the other things, yeah, the origin of, of uh, Maria's relationship with Suave and how that was handled. I think Maggie did a good job with it, but I think she was put kind of in a difficult situation and did, if I say the best that she could, that sort of sounds like a half-handed compliment. It's not. She did a great job. But I think she was put at a disadvantage because I wonder if it went to somebody who sort of had a free hand that could explore anything or felt free to explore anything. And again, I'm not saying that Maggie didn't feel that way. I'm just projecting, you know, I wonder if it it's It's how different. you
0: would feel. It's how I would feel. <laughs> Look, and I,
1: and I have to be the first to admit, like, the idea of like a troublesome relationship with somebody behind bars, who's a story like that got thrown on me. It's in my book. If you listen to that episode of criminal, I was looking at the tagline for it and it said like a reporter's communication with a serial killer got flirty. And I felt like the implication was I was flirty with a serial killer when she was flirty with me because, because that's how she manipulated men that she would killed. And I, so I completely disagree with the, that any characterization of that, but I have to live with that. And so I think Maria did something different here, but I think that she's not hiding from it. And I just wish that they had kind of confronted that part of it a little more. That being said, it's still a thumbs up. I think you should listen to it.
0: Yeah, I love this podcast way more than you guys. So I think in seven episodes, this podcast accomplishes four whole things. There's a really interesting story about journalism. And I agree with all of you that I actually would have liked more of that because by the way, my feelings on this are shifting. Objectivity is a construct that was created by white men like 150 years ago. Someone decided that objectivity equals truth, which isn't true. Um, And I think that's a very interesting conversation that I would have liked the podcast to explore a little bit more. But it talked about that. It also did a profile of a very interesting subject. Suave, whatever you think of his life story, is a fascinating subject it also did some looks at big picture issues uh juvenile incarceration in prison treatment uh, lifetime parole so it hit that there's some social justice issues and it also did the re-examination of an old case that no one cares about anymore like i was thinking at the beginning of the podcast like i don't care what he did i mean i care obviously but like it's not important as maria says it's not the case's story it's his story but they did that anyway. They actually looked at the case again. So I just feel like the podcast accomplished so much in seven episodes. It's also, by the way, we never talked about this, produced and mixed beautifully. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I'm going to say it again, Toby. This podcast, along with Through the Cracks, is going to go on my best podcast of the year list. I'm going to predict that right now. I love Suave. Huge thumbs up for me. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the the week. A sushi promotion in Taiwan got way out of hand when the government needed to step in and ask people to stop changing their names to Salmon. A restaurant offered all-you-can-eat sushi for six people to any customer with "gyu" on their ID. Those are the Chinese characters for salmon. <laughs> That's when more than 150 people rushed to government offices to change their names. The media called it Salmon Chaos. Among those who took advantage of the $200 meal was Bao Chang Giyu, whose name translates to explosive, good-looking salmon. <laughs> Taiwanese Nothing officials. About your
1: salmon should be explosive.
0: Taiwanese officials were not amused. Though it allows all citizens to legally change their name up to three times, authorities complain the promotion has created a crushing amount of paperwork to process all the name changes and new IDs, most of which are likely to be changed back after the last Torah roll has been rolled. The restaurant promotion was a huge success, even if it was a bit fishy. All right, so panel, here's my question for you. Change your name to get an all-you-can-eat meal and introduce yourself. Laura Bricker, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I'm going to steal one that I think you're going to appreciate, Rebecca. Um, I'm Laura Buttery Chardonnay and Triscuits. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Triscuits and me, we have a long, oh, happy relationship. I love the Triscuits. <laughs> so they're like my pandemic food. Oh my God, I love them so much.
0: I'm really enjoying how much the official Triscuit account has been responding to my tweets recently. Ball, what about you? Change your name to an all-you-can-eat meal and introduce yourself, please.
2: I wasn't thinking whole meal, but uh, I would say... Medium ice cream, no sugar ball.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Kevin Flynn, what about you?
2: I'm Kevin Tutti Fruity Fresh and
1: Fruity Flynn.
0: I am Rebecca Taco Bell Bean Burrito Voy is what I am. (laughs) All right. We should probably end on that note before we
3: do. Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We actually have a dog this week. It comes to Mm. us from Lindsay Masters. And Lindsay sent in a picture of her dog, Maddie. She is 16 years old, will be 17 in May. She's really slowing down. So she, I am cherishing every day I get with her. She has arthritis, so we can't walk anymore, but we do stroll. And when she says stroll, she literally means she puts the dog in a stroller around the neighborhood while she is listening to Crime Writers On. Nice. And there is an adorable picture of Maddie the dog in her stroller with her little pink polar fleece on and her little blankies like out on the street touring around the town. It's lovely. So thank you so much, Lindsay. I love Maddie. Maddie. Lara Bricker, if folks want to send
0: you their videos or photos or other pitches for Cat of the Week, of course, they can email us at gmail.com or put them on any of our Facebook groups. But to say they want to do them on Twitter, how can they find you there? Uh, they can find me at Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, if folks want to reach out to you on Twitter and see your freaking amazing office setup with your motorized desk and many, many computer screens, how can they find you on Twitter?
2: At Toby Ball and H.
0: And Kevin Flynn, if folks to reach out to you on Twitter and maybe see your brand new, very clean and beautiful haircut, how can they find you on Twitter?
1: I'm being sexy at Kevin P. Flynn.
0: You can find me on Twitter and Instagram where I am decidedly not sexy. It's mostly about dogs, parkas, and Kevin.
1: <laughs> That's sexy.
0: <laughs> at Reb LaVoy. Damn, girl. You can also follow the show on Twitter <sighs> at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our really, truly amazing <laughs> community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. And we also have a regular Facebook page, but that's not important. The group is important. Support this show at patreon.com/slash partners in crime media, and you will get the crime raiders on after show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Lara Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by the truly talented Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this fine show is Kevin Flynn mm-hmm. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega. In Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet, in our New Hampshire basement, where we vacuum our podcast scripts through a screen, so they will look like old-timey Mormon podcast scripts. On behalf of all the crime writers, Mormon thanks podcast. so much for listening.
1: Thank you, sellers. So we'll catch you later. We
0: will catch you later. Dateline Salt Lake City. Imagine Joseph Smith doing a Casper ad. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: I just don't know what day it is anymore because it's like I, I like I don't know. I'm out of because I took Monday off this week and now I just like I'm like off from what? Off from my busy schedule of puzzling <laughs> Rebecca. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Christ. I I mean, I needed a break from the puzzling. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we took like a 24 hour anniversary excursion. Um, I saw so something. Where did you go? Went to York. We to- went to Sextown, USA.
1: Sextown, Maine. Yeah.
3: Sextown in York. But uh, yeah, it's all the de- like hotels you mean are. Pork, s- Maine? Yeah. <laughs> Everything's so cheap right now, it's awesome. <laughs>
1: Southport. Like, they went
3: to Banger, Maine. Banger, oh. Maine. Oh
2: God! Don't <laughs> oh, even say gosh. it. When I was Banger, at the uh, When I was at I the Rise Above her. Fest.
3: Banger, I, don't, I was going to say that, but Kevin. It, it was it. like.
2: It was like shitty metal group after shitty metal group making banger jokes. <laughs> you've, you've seen Papa Roach try and, uh, oh God. Try and s- slip a banger joke in there.
1: It's... A gunkwit. No. A gunkwit just sounds dirty when you say it like that.
3: Yeah. Oh you God. mean a hunkwit. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. come
3: Oh God! <laughs> okay, you guys, this is much more exciting than my trip actually was. <laughs> Just say, uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Ken's taking different days off because he's working weekends now. So
1: trying to enter the Kenny bunk port.
3: Yeah. Oh, st- Hey, that's Not per-
0: Augusta, but a musta.
3: Oh, <laughs> 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 you guys are, oh my goodness gracious. You sound like, you know who you sound like? You sound like neighbor, neighbor Dan. I Like neighbor Dan took care of the dog while we were gone and he called up to confirm details. He goes, you gonna have another baby after this? <gasps> oh, no, like, God. Uh, No. Only Maybe if we go it, to Porkland. <laughs> uh, another
0: cat. You know what it is? It's huh. Ken. E bunkport. Ken E em- <laughs> <Ken. Ken> bunkport. <laughs> oh,
1: poor
2: Ken.
0: I, it's okay. That's why they poor call Ken. him. Ken, he had. You were he had to spend a whole day with
3: Lara, and that makes him like poor. Ken.
2: <laughs> no, no, it's just <laughs> that, he's not here to. Uh, fire that's why back. they call him
3: Long Suffering Ken. That's what my coworkers <laughs> used to call him, uh, Long Suffering Ken. Oh my God! <laughs> so there you go. Okay.
1: Business in Crime, crime Media. media.